You're raised as an athlete to fight back. So why all of a sudden, when you retire, do you stop the good fight? This is Finding Center with Nick Hardwick. Hey gang, it's Nick here. Hope everyone is doing well, and I hope you had a wonderful, nourishing Thanksgiving week. And after some downtime, you're ready to get back on track, both physically and from a nutrition standpoint. To help us with that, we've got a tremendous guest that I am so excited to present to you. Joining us today is Dr. Sue Kleiner. Dr. Kleiner is the owner of High Performance Nutrition, LLC. It's a consulting firm in Mercer Island, Washington. She is the Director of Science and Communication for Vitargo, Inc. and the High Performance Nutritionist for the Seattle Storm. Dr. Kleiner is the author of eight books, including The New Power Eating, The Good Mood Diet, and Power Food Nutrition. She is one of the foremost nutrition authorities on eating for strength, and her power eating program has reshaped the lives of thousands. The book is a bestseller and a leader in the field and is now in its fifth edition and retitled The New Power Eating. Dr. Sue's Good Mood Diet Program it arose from her observations that her clients' moods and energy levels improved with their nutrition. The Good Mood Diet Program was featured in the Seattle Post-Intelligencer and is the basis for her book, The Good Mood Diet, Feel Great While You Lose Weight. That's an interesting concept. Dr. Kleiner's credentials include a PhD in nutrition, an RD, FACN, CNS, FISSN certifications, and honors. She is a co-founder and fellow of the International Society of Sports Nutrition and a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. She is a member of the American College of Sports Medicine and the National Strength and Conditioning Association. In this interview, we will touch on both eating for performance and eating for health in both men and women. In her new book, she adds sections specifically for brain health and nutrition specifically for women's health and performance. Whether you're a hardcore elite athlete or just someone who wants to improve their energy levels and body composition, I would highly suggest getting yourself a copy of the book, New Power Eating, and putting it to work for you. Jed Smith, the strength and conditioning coach at the University of Northern Iowa, said, quote, Dr. Kleiner is simply the best sports nutritionist the United States has ever produced. That's some high praise. I've been using this book as my guide for the last several months. I've had lots of success, guys. My energy has been tremendously high. My performance, not only in the gym, has increased, but my energy where it really matters at home with my boys and Jamie has been substantially improved. And, of course, this always helps, too. My body fat has continued to drop, and my lean mass is increasing. I'm guessing a lot of you listening today, you've got similar goals as well. Dr. Kleiner became an industry leader in performance nutrition by putting in decades of devotion to the hardcore science, research, and attaining her coaching experience. You're going to see and hear that in her recommendations. Amidst all of the fad diets and brilliant marketing and gurus telling us how much we don't know about how the body works and why the information we thought we knew was all wrong, Dr. Sue's new power eating book stands firmly on the fundamentals and principles on which the human body actually operates. This book feels like home to me. Dr. Kleiner manages to deliver the information in a very clear and concise manner so you can begin applying it immediately as you're working through the book. 
Lastly, before we get going, I thought I'd bring some focus to this podcast and its importance with the two first sentences of Dr. Kleiner's new power reading book. Muscle is strong and knowledge is power. No matter who you are or where you are in life, having a body that is fit and strong is the most successful life strategy you can pursue mentally and physically. I completely agree. Let's get into this. Here we go. Joining us now on the Finding Center podcast is Dr. Sue Kleiner. Doc, thank you so much for the time today. How are you? I am great, and it is my pleasure to be here with you today. Thanks, Nick. Oh, fantastic. Okay, before we get started on the book, The New Power Eating, the fifth edition that was just released, you told me before we got interviewing that you had the chance to work with Bill Belichick at the beginning of his head coaching career. When was that? How was that? And, and what was the experience like? Was It was a life-changing experience or professional life-changing experience. So that was in 1991. So, yeah, maybe before a lot of the people even listening were born. Um, and... It was his first head coaching job at the original or the former Cleveland Browns. <laughs> you know, they 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 left and and returned, and and so um, it was just before they left that Coach Belichick had his first head coaching job in Cleveland, Ohio, with from my day were the before the. Super Bowls, they were the world champion Cleveland Browns, <laughs> the 1960s, right? So um, he came um, with a contract demand of having a sports nutritionist work with the team. And I have to tell you that most people had no idea what sports nutrition was, what it, that it even existed as a field. He had worked previously when he was the, the um assistant defensive coach at the Patriots. He worked with a part-time nutritionist who was also, you know, a, a, a leader. The, the field was, we were creating the field as we went along. She was a pioneer. She ultimately left the field, but she so impressed Coach Belichick that he came to Cleveland with a contract demand for a sports nutritionist. And I had done my PhD, my doctoral research at the Cleveland Clinic with the docs who were the team physicians. And I had left and come back. Um, I'd been on faculty at Duke and came back and he, uh, it was recommended that he, that I be the person. And so I sat down with Coach Belichick and it was really my job to lose, as you say. And he asked me, so how much difference can you make for my players? And my answer, honestly, was, look, these guys are at the top of their game. They're at the top of their profession. They have the best genes. They have the best coaching, the best training. Um, but what nutrition can do is maybe at the end of the game, they have a little more energy to make the goal or to catch that last pass. Maybe at the end of the season, you go into postseason, they are still strong enough and well enough to make it into postseason and win. Ultimately, they stay healthier throughout each season. And most importantly to each player is that it 
we know that it will extend their playing life, which is worth a lot of money. And so he kind of, you know, looked at me, smirked a little and said, you know, had you said to me, I can add, you know, a certain percentage, 10%, I can improve their performance by a certain percentage, I would have closed the door on you on your way out. But this answer makes sense to me. I mean, it's, so, it, go ahead. Yeah, so, so I got and ultimately created, with his guidance, the first full-time nutrition program in the NFL. And how much time were you spending around the team and with the facility and all of that? So I was a consultant. I wasn't an employee, but it was really nearly all my time. I probably was spending 30 hours a week, 20 to, you know, depending on the week, uh, 20 to 30 hours, certainly all of spring training uh, and, and the athletes as they were coming in and prepping for training camp, um, uh, I was on the field watching and learning. I was spending time with Coach Belichick as, you know, he really guided the needs of each player and with the strength and conditioning coach at that time. Um, and uh, Jerry Simmons was the strength and conditioning coach. And I learned about attention to detail that what the difference between an elite player and a champion was attention to details. And even though for a younger athlete, nutrition detail at the elite levels, there are so many things, as you know, that an athlete is paying attention to that nutrition, the detail, but it's a make or break detail. And for all the reasons that I said, so to you, it's probably no surprise that you've seen Bill Belichick in nine Super Bowls. They've won six with the New England Patriots. I mean, 1991, we're talking about a full-scale performance nutrition program, first of its kind, and not only did he bring it to the Cleveland Browns, he had it baked into his contract that that was a contract demand. That, to me, is mind-blowing because there's still – so many professional teams and organizations out there that have no nutrition program in place and it's really nothing as comprehensive as it sounds like you guys had in 1991 i mean it's unbelievable right. yeah it was it was visionary and he you know he showed who he was at that time he taught me so much about you know the in season as well as off season it really gave me the inspiration for the original power eating to keep to stick to what i knew we were in the early days of the research into strength power and speed and so the body of evidence was growing sort of along with the art so it was the art and the science and sports nutrition continues to be both because we're dealing with behaviors individuals um, lots of moving parts so um, but but it was coach Belichick really who who was my inspiration to uh, you know along with great scientists who I stand on the shoulders of but 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 in the in the practical world in the in the world of where the rubber meets the road of athlete performance they, he he was a hundred percent convinced and he was um really 
tough on on what should be served to the athletes when you know when I said if you take all the fried food out of the training camp menu you're going to have a mutiny on your hands and they're going to get up and drive to KFC which is down the street he said I don't care and again this is 1991 we're talking about and and in fact he did have a mutiny and we did negotiate <laughs> sort of a um you know some place in between but but he practiced what he preached he was strong in his convictions and he said you have to stand your ground or these guys will walk all over you and that was a very important lesson that has carried me through my entire career so that was the inspiration for the original power eating and i guess what immediately stands out about the new power eating is that this book is in its fifth edition and you've continued to update the book it evolves as the science has evolved but you don't get away from the fundamentals that you began with when the book was in that first edition in 98 or 1999 i believe it was so 20 plus years into this journey of power eating congrats i mean huge congratulations to you thank you so much so for me, what this book does is it really, in the nutrition space, it kind of brings us back to a grounded place again. While so many books really want to tell you everything you thought you knew was wrong and you may have to completely change what you're doing, the way you think, how you live, so you can get those goals you want, your book, it feels like home and it's very attainable. How much, how much of this diet was honed in by the athletes in the organizations like the Cleveland Browns and the other organizations that you worked with over the years to understand not only what is effective, but it, what is manageable. And I guess what you were talking about, the artwork aspect of it for an individual. Yeah, well, it it is completely built on this, you know, probably by now thousands of athletes that I've worked with and interacted with, along with the, you know, the extreme change in our knowledge of of the science over the last 20 years and the reason to keep writing a new book is because there's new science and so every five years there you know i feel this sort of huge weight that things are it's not that physiology has changed (laughs) you know human physiology is not changing it's our understanding of how to work with it and how to get our physiology to to put it to work for us. And so that's when that sort of evidence starts to change that we can update. We know new things. Most of the things that were written in the original book, there's nothing that's wrong. It just was tiny compared to the size and breadth and scope of this book. You know, we never would have thought about writing about genetics in in the 1990s, we didn't know anything about that field. It was in its infancy. Today, we can talk about the influence of genetics. Today, we can talk about nutrition and the brain and the central nervous Those things, we, you know, we were in the very early days in the 90s. And yet, I waited a decade to publish Power Eating from when I finished my PhD, which was studying uh, competitive male bodybuilders, both steroid users and non-users, um, I had to wait a decade for there to be enough scientific data to even talk about to put in a book. So, so 
you know, 20 years later, it's a dramatic change. So what stands out to you the most about how you may think differently about performance nutrition for strength athletes since that first edition? Well, um, since the first edition, we knew it wasn't healthy. So the, you know, health professionals that overlapped in the strength and power world knew that there were two things that athletes did that were not healthy. Number one, steroid users in a big way. And number two, they gained a massive amount of weight um, in the off season to try and then taper down. Um, it, you know, the goal was I'm, I'm gaining muscle and I can't help it. I'm going to be gaining fat too. And I just gain, you know, 50, 60 pounds, depending on, you know, the, if we were talking football, depending on the position of the athlete. And some didn't gain at all. You know, if you were safety, you weren't out gaining 80 pounds. But, but there were these huge swings in the linemen, for sure, in, in body weight in the offseason that then had to come off um, during, as we approached the competitive season. And so we knew that wasn't healthy. Um, and, and as I began in the field, we, we learned that diet had a role in the risk of heart disease. And so we knew that we were losing older athletes um, that, that had retired that from both probably drug use as well as these massively unhealthy diets. And, and we didn't know what role either of those played. And that's, in fact, what my study was, the role of diet and anabolic steroids on the risk of cardiovascular disease and body composition in competitive male bodybuilders. And so, so that was extremely relevant to the time. Um, and then my role as I continued was looking at the nutritional alternatives to anabolic steroids. And so, so, so the two things that really stood out was this massive weight gain and drug use. And was there something that we could do with diet that could affect both? That's really interesting, especially when you're talking about the weight gain, because I was a big weight gain guy. I had to. I showed up to college at 195 pounds, and I played my career at 295 pounds. And I obviously know that that was not healthy weight gain. There was no steroids involved in that process. But I talked to, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, we had Dr. Herman Taylor, who's part of the former football player study at Harvard. And, mm-hmm. and the new science coming out from that study now tells us that regardless of current weight, that the weight gained from high school to college and then from college to the professional level is very detrimental, obviously, in increasing increments as the weight goes up, the different weight levels of gain. So really interesting that that was an early part of your study. Is a lot of the research that comes in the world of performance nutrition, is it trickled down from the bodybuilding world? Yes. Even though when I started, <laughs> even the American College of Sports Medicine wouldn't accept my doctoral research for presentation because they said, and this was 1987, uh, 88, that um, strength training was an exercise and bodybuilders were not athletes and my research was too nutritional. Now, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, that's what I'm focusing on here. Right. So, so, you know, things have changed dramatically. Um, 
And so today we, we really understand how important the, you know, that, that ex, the exercise strength training and resistance training and weightlifting is for anybody and everybody to be able to maintain the activities of daily living throughout a lifetime to maintain your independence. Um, and, and then we've learned that it, it is protective for bone health. It is protective for cardiovascular health. It's protective uh, metabolically. You know, there are so many things. And it is, it's also um, a good thing for mental health to maintain your independence. And so, yes, in fact, that data has not just moved from the bodybuilding world to the general sports world, it's moved out to the general population at large and healthcare. So um, those were the, that was kind of the beginning. And then, um, and then dietarily, some things move from the bodybuilding, you know, things move back and forth, really. It, it's not all out of the bodybuilding world because, boy, the bodybuilding world was pretty wild um, at that time, uh, they, be, they were good subjects to study because they had very rigorous diet recording um, habits. They, were, um, they stayed true to their diet plans, and so they were kind of easy subjects to study. And for me, they, they had one goal, which was to increase size, increase muscle size. And so strength wasn't so much of the issue as size, but strength along with it. So, so there was some transfer. There was a lot that we learned because, you know, athletes usually will drop strategies if they don't work. And so the idea that, oh, higher protein, that's ridiculous. You don't need that. You only need carbs. When we looked at bodybuilders, that just wasn't the fact. They needed both, and we started to, to have good research subjects to look at what were their nitrogen needs, what were their protein needs for building massive amounts of muscle. Um, and so, so some of that transferred in the direction of all sports, but then bodybuilders started to learn that they had very high-fat diets, and they started to learn that that wasn't necessarily in their favor um, because of this massive weight gain that they'd have in the off season. And if they wanted to stay closer to a competitive weight, and then if they wanted to stay more in photo shoot ready weight <laughs> year round, that massive weight gain wasn't, wasn't strategic. And so how did they adjust that? That was learning from the sports nutrition world from more athletic performance side that very high fat, sort of super high calorie in the off season was not was not good, and went both ways. So they realized they needed to be in a calorie surplus, but they also realized that this extra in probably a gratuitous amount of fat that they were taking in was really unnecessary. Also, kind of interesting that perhaps like capitalism drove this a touch where they 
we're starting to be able to monetize the figures on a year-round basis, be in photo shoots, do some movies and all that. They said, I got to look, I got to look good at a moment's notice. I can't just be 30 pounds overweight and then be ready to go. Well, Arnold changed everything, right? Yes. (laughs) He just changed everything. And, and so the fact that they could capitalize on these bodies, that was, you know, sort of, you know, there were a few before him, but he showed it in a big way. And, and so that was, again, that switch is what led to the concept of periodizing not just training, but that I um, had the great good fortune to be in communication with Dr. Tudor Bumpa, who was the father of periodized training, of weightlifting. And, and so that's what, when I said, well, if you're changing up the training and the goals of the training protocol during cycles, diet needs to follow that. And that's what led to the four, and now there are five, um, sort of periodized diet plans in power eating. So we own some group fitness gyms here in San Diego. It's We really like to classify it like high-intensity bodybuilding. So for a lot of our members, if of, of course, they want to do a little bit of bodybuilding, but also still general population, a lot of health stuff in there as well. If you were to construct them a diet, do you start by building out the protein intake or where do you start with your build out with a client? Well, it depends on where the client starts from, okay. right? I mean, you've got a client maybe that's never lifted ever. Um, and then you've got a client that is not a novice, but just hasn't had a high level program to get to help them get to their goals. And so there are two different bodies that we're starting with. It's also, what does the client do otherwise? Is this a pretty athletic person that spends not just time in the gym, but also does recreational sport? Or is this an office worker who sits for 10 hours a day right. and then does an hour or an hour and a half workout in the gym? And so those are really different situations. And the first thing is fueling the goal. That's number one, because if you're too tired either to get off the couch and get to the gym because you're too underfueled because you think you're sculpting your body and so you're underfueling, but you're exhausted before you even get to the gym because you're not eating enough, or half your workout, you're already fatigued, and so you really should do a 30- or 40-minute workout. That's all you've got fuel for. The rest of the workout, you're not really, you're not challenging yourself anymore. You're just getting through it to the end because you're fatigued. That second half of the workout, it's not a waste. You're moving as far as health goals, but you're not making any, you're not challenging yourself physically to accomplish the next level. And so, um, so fueling the goal, figuring out the energy need is number one. Then it's what is the distribution of those calories and the other needs of the body based on the type of training. So if the training is a building protocol that we want to build muscle tissue, then yes, then certainly we need more protein, we need more carb, we need more fat. Those are all the building blocks for building that new tissue. You need the fat for the, for the hormonal milieu, you need the fat for 
supporting the, the weight lifting and cushioning. You need fat for the energy during the, if you're, if you're not only doing explosive exercise, but you're also doing some sort of um, moderate intensity exercise, which is very common that, that is, that you're using fat for fuel there. So, and there's so many other reasons fat is important for, for, for brain function, central nervous system function. So you're including all of those building blocks. Um, once you've, and, and you are giving us, you're super compensating, as you say, your energy need because you want to grow. You need extra energy and you need to fuel the extra workout fuel that you need. So it's quite a, a substantial bit more. Then when you say, okay, no matter when we gain weight, we gain some proportion of muscle to fat. You never gain only muscle. You never lose only fat. But you can narrow those margins by being smart about the metabolism of the body and really doing good measurements on energy needs and how this individual's own metabolism works. And so you can get close to a slower fat gain um, or a greater fat loss depending on, on the goal of the training. And as we start to then sculpt down the body, that's where you never underfuel the training, never underfuel the training, because that's what is helping sculpt your body. But you can, you can minimize some calories at some other point in the day to create the deficit. So those are the tricks of sort of sports nutrition um, and the things that we know what to do. When you're trying to gain responsibly, I guess you would call it, just gain with, you know, some uh, trying to get the muscle on but trying to limit the fat that's coming on, what kind of calorie surplus do you start with? And I know it's individual and we got to see how this kind of calorie surplus works out for us and see what layers we're putting on and off and go from there. But where do you start people? Right. So I, you know, the first thing when they come into my office, I, I, I have already collected massive amounts of information and one is an extensive diet record as detailed as possible along with the movement that they have all day long, day in and day out. And, and that's how I can tell what have they been eating? What have they been burning? And then what has their body been doing? They also give me a, a, a weight gain, weight loss record. And so I know not just at a point in time where I could measure energy output and, and energy intake, but how has their body responded over the last six months to what they're doing so we can get a, 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 a sort of a, a range of how their body responds to energy deficits and, 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 and um, increases. And so... So when I know that number pretty well, where they're kind of at balance, it's not really balance, but, but at kind of at zero sure. where they're not gaining and losing, I will start with an, with an, an excess of only 400 calories a day. Okay. If I have that real number. Now, in power eating, as you know, I actually go through and I say, for someone who is a novice lifter, 
exercising three to four times a week or someone who is far more experienced and, and, and exercising five or more times a week, I can say based on the goal of the training, do you want to maintain muscle? Do you want to build muscle? Do you want to drop fat? Do you want to cut weight? Or we are, have in there now, are you a cross-training athlete? Um, do you, how many grams, how many calories per kilogram or how many calories per pound generally you need to accomplish your goals. But of course, it's always plus or minus, and I give a range to begin with, but it's a really good starting place because it gives people this the idea, typically, of how little they're eating and why they're plateauing all the time, and they're not getting anywhere. Most people who come into my office are not eating nearly enough and even every female athlete is typically down by 800 to 1,000 calories a day. Down from where they need to be. Where they need to be. No kidding. Yes. And, and do you no find when, when you get them up to speed to where they need to be, what, and I know a lot of females, my wife obviously is one of them, that's, she knows how she wants to look and she feels good and she's very strong and she works out five, six times a week, but she can't get off that on scale do you find when you put them back up to the caloric needs that they really have to fuel their workouts in their life, what happens to their body weight when they're getting the proper nutrition in at the right times? Well, it's, you know, their body weight, in fact, is, unless they're a weight class athlete, is irrelevant, right? Yes. They get ripped. Yes. They look unbelievable. Unbelievable. So... <laughs> but we're, when I say 800 to 1,000 calories, we are talking about professional athletes, typically, or gotcha. Olympic athletes, or, you know, people who are using their body in their professional vehicle. When we talk about women who are moms and, and have work lives and are also serious about their training, it may not be 800 to 1,000 calories because they're not training two to three times a day. Right. But... In that case, they are typically underfueling, and the, it may be four to five hundred calories a day, and it usually is around their training. So, what most people do, they think about sort of the person who's not the competitive athlete. Uh, they think about their training as their weight loss opportunity, and so they go into training vastly underfueled. So they never burn as, cal as many calories as they could during their workout because they don't have the fuel to work hard enough to burn all those calories, number one. Number two, they're not challenging their body to the capacity that they have, so they never get the, the training results that they're looking for, and they never get the afterburn, even though it's not that much, but it's enough the afterburn is where you burn the extra calories that even if it's up to 50 to 100 calories a day is significant, especially for the individual who has a, an, a desk job for most of their day. And so, so underfueling your training is the epitome of doing the opposite of what you want to do when you ultimately want a sculpted body. So you need to fuel your training, and very often 
another 400 calories goes in at least around training as pre-fuel because they're waking up early in the morning and training fasted, as in-fuel if they're working out for more than 90 minutes, and as post-exercise recovery fuel uh, as protein and carb to again raise their metabolic to maximize the work that they've put in during their training, and it raises their calorie burn during that recovery period because now they not only have the recovery fuel that they're, that, that they're burning, but what they've consumed has an additional 10% to their caloric burn. And so, so it is, as I said, completely self-defeating to not fuel your training. But at another time during the day, let's say from 8 p.m. until midnight, <laughs> when people consistently consume another 250 to 300 <laughs> right. calories, cut it out then, but not around your training. That is absolutely defeating the purpose. Tell me more about this afterburn, because I, I think what you're getting at is the post-exercise oxygen deprivation. Is that what you're talking about with the afterburn, right. or is this something see, else? Right. It, you see it as EPOC, Right. Yes. Post-exercise oxygen consumption. Okay, there it is. So it's ex- you know, and so so it's it it is not as high as many people make it out to be. Right? It's not it's not going to. It, what do I want? It's not the second coming. Right? I mean, <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it's just not. But it is there. And so it is, and and what it represents is your body recovering from the, metabolically, from the exercise that you have performed. So you you have used fuel. You've used um, carbohydrate that has been stored in your muscles if you've done high-intensity exercise. Um, And so that's called muscle glycogen. You have depleted that. You have had some fat burning, and that fat that you burn during exercise is not what's found around your middle. It is the droplets that are stored around your muscles, and that's what you have access to during low to moderate intensity or moderately high intensity exercise. If you are um, very well trained, you access that fat and it's what fuels you during endurance exercise. And we have a lot of it. But when we use those fuel sources during exercise, the body then wants to replace them. And so you're, you, it uses energy to replace those energy sources. At the same time, you have broken down tissues. And so protein metabolism ramps up so that you start to repair um, and recover and grow. And all of that requires energy, and it's an elevated energy expenditure that we can measure through your breathing, through how much oxygen you are consuming and how much carbon dioxide you're expiring during those hours immediately after exercise. And the more oxygen you consume, it's a, it represents a higher energy demand. And after exercise, the higher and longer your exercise has been, the higher your 
energy demand immediately post-exercise. And what we find is that there's a slight difference between if you've done endurance exercise or you've done uh, strength and power exercise. Um, it varies from individual to individual, but it stays pretty consistent within individuals. And if you fuel your training, you have a higher energy output during exercise, so you have a higher energy demand post-exercise. And as I said, depending on the exercise, you may burn an extra, in, in, in absolute numbers, you know, maybe over several hours after exercise, 100 calories. Depending on the individual, it may be more. Okay. If you're a big dude, you know, with a lot of muscle, it's going to be higher. Of course, your muscle mass is part of what determines this. And so um, what we know is that when people go into exercise under-fueled, and we've done these studies, so you don't, you're, you're not well-fueled, you don't have the carbohydrate on board to fuel the, the high-intensity exercise that you would like to be doing, you will feel like you are working out as hard as you possibly can. I call it, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, you're at a 9 or a 10, it, it, puke or pass out, and I know you know what that means, <laughs> That's right? right. I was in the, uh, I call it the standing fetal position this morning. It was gluten hamstring day, and I was like standing, curled up, my hands, I was like, I don't want to lift any more weights, and I had to go again. So, right, right. Yeah. So... So you feel, it's called your rate of perceived exertion. You perceive that you are exerting your body as hard as you possibly can. But when you don't have the carbohydrate available to fuel that exercise and we measure that work output, it is at a watt output of what you would normally perceive at a five or a six. Okay. So what I'm saying yes. is the reason you plateau it's because you're not working out as hard as you think you are. Yes. Oh, there you go. That And the gains, right? The gains all happen like 80, 90, and 100% of threshold. Right. You, you have to stay in those areas, and that's what you're talking about. It's like halfway through, you're exhausted. Now you're just getting through. Yes, you're getting cardiovascular work, and yes, you're working your muscles, but you're not getting those gains from that last bit of push because you're underfueled. Exactly. Okay. So give me a little bit of uh, weaponry, I guess, because I coach classes at the gym and I tell people every time after we come and bang these weights and we break down and I say, please go fuel yourselves with carbs and protein. But you know where we're at in times now. So many people become scared of carbs based on the diets that recirculate, Atkins, ketogenic. We got all sideways on this. Why give me something that I can give to these folks that why carbs and protein after a workout? What happens physiologically in the body? So all right, I'm gonna I'll answer your question and then I'm gonna have a comment. Okay, cool. Good. Yeah, <laughs> so, please do. So to answer the question, carbohydrate replenishes your muscle glycogen stores, the carbohydrate fuel that you cannot lift without. You just don't. Okay. I don't care how many people tell you that are from Madison Avenue or were marketing geniuses at a tech company that say fat will fuel your exercise. They don't know what they're talking about. They're just selling you products. You cannot get gains 
without carbohydrate. And anyone who's telling you that they are is lying. And I work with athletes who are known as ketogenic athletes who I know darn well use carbs. So nobody wins and nobody gains without carbs. You cannot do high-intensity exercise without them. Human physiology has not changed in the past decade. <laughs> so, so that's number one. Carbohydrates specifically replenish your muscles so that you can train again later in the day or the next day. Protein helps to repair your tissues, helps your, repair, your body repair, replenish, and grow as individual building blocks for muscle tissue. And all the other tissues, you know how important your supporting tissues are, your connective tissues, your, your joints, your ligaments. Uh, you know, you cannot do any of this exercise without healthy supporting tissues. It supports your immune function, which takes a hit after heart exercise. There's all kinds of functions that protein has. When you put carbohydrate and protein together, they enhance the absorption and travel into the cells um, of each other. So each, they, they both enhance the um, absorption and utilization of the other nutrient. Together, they create what we call an anabolic hormonal environment in the body. So they, carbohydrate and protein together spur growth hormone. And so you get a bigger bang for your buck when you consume them together. Now, the, the concept that we had worked with for years about this sort of very important anabolic window that you have an hour and that window starts to shut what we understand now after exercise is that that's true replenishment, carbohydrate replenishment. There is a very rapid uh, rise in absorption immediately after exercise for about an hour to two hours. At about 90 minutes, that starts to taper off. It doesn't mean you'll never replenish your glycogen. It just means if you want to work out in a couple more hours, it's going to be harder you won't be fully replenished if you haven't recovered well immediately afterwards. Um, but, you know, over 24 hours by the next day, as long as you're eating and you're getting in carbs, you'll be okay. Um, but, but there is this rapid window that does start to level off at about 90 minutes. When it comes to protein in particular, as long as you've got enough throughout the day, it is not as essential to get the protein in immediately. However, they do work together. And if you're taking in carb, why not take in a good slug of protein at the same time? Because so many people don't eat immediately after exercise. They'll shower. They get busy doing something else. They go back to work. They have to pick up the kids. Whatever they have to do, it may be hours before they eat. And now you really have lost an opportunity. So, so that's the, the specific science. As far as the promotion of carbohydrate, it has nothing to do with the metabolism of an athletic individual. That's about people who are unhealthy, overweight, have um, uh, metabolic syndrome, 
type 2 diabetes or marginally diabetic have let themselves become overweight and obese and they have elevated stress hormones across the board including cortisol which completely messes with all of our metabolic processes and can make you insulin resistant and messes with your carbohydrate metabolism and down the road you may have a problem with insulin and carbohydrate consumption. But unless you're that person, carbohydrate is what fuels your exercise. And even in that person, they need to start eating carbohydrates again if they want to get very physically active. And you don't hear the stories about the people who started to, number one, control all the ultra-processed foods that they were eating and eliminated carbohydrate from the ultra-processed foods that they cut out of their diet and got healthier. It wasn't the carbohydrate uh, as the devil. It was the bad diet in general and the um, inactivity of their lives. Maybe they were smokers. I mean, there's so and, and very high stress and not sleeping. All of those things mess with our bodies in entirety. And eliminating carbohydrate typically means eliminating sodas and fast foods and processed foods and snack foods and packaged foods and candy and cookies and all those foods that the average person thinks of as the source of carbohydrate. All of us need to be eating whole grains. I'm not telling you you have to eat bread. If you don't want to, okay. if you have a problem, but whole grains and beans and, and f whole fruits and whole vegetables, those foods are absolutely essential for our health and well-being, our digestive system, our microbiome. And for a very active person, it's hard to eat enough of the fuel that you need from carbohydrate rich sources that are high in fiber and still feel empty enough to train. And so that's when we say using products that are engineered for athletic performance and the product that I depend on, I'm going to say is Vitargo. And I will be completely transparent in the past year and a half. I started working with them after working with the product with my clients for 14, 15 years using products that have science and evidence behind the claims that they can enhance athletic performance makes sense because it's better than using drugs. Yes. <laughs> and, and the fear of carbohydrate has nothing to do with athletic performance. See, and thank you for that. That's the context that we failed to get delivered to us when all these new books come out and the new science and the big marketing comes out around them. It's, for a very specific subsect of the population that has very serious medical conditions that you pointed to. So thank you for that. You know, another area in your book where you zig, where a lot of new age folks are zagging is dairy. I'm, I'm with you. I love dairy. I love how my body feels on dairy. Do you get a lot of pushback and questions when you recommend dairy? Yeah. And so I guess the, the next concept, or there's two big concepts. Um, that go throughout the new power eating and, 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 and fundamental to the field of nutrition is variety. 
right? So the most important, when people say, what's the most important food that I can eat? I say, there is no one magic food, but there is a magic concept and that's variety. And so variety among all foods, between foods, among all food groups and within the food groups. And so the other, the other important concept is nuance that I keep saying, we're not the same person to person. We're going to discover so much more as we get better at understanding our genetics. Um, dairy in and of itself is a, an incredibly important source of nutrition for athletic individuals, but it doesn't mean you can't live or perform without it. And it doesn't mean that if you're the person who can't consume it or you choose not to, that you'll never succeed. But it is an easy source of great nutrition. It is a natural combination of protein and carbohydrate. You heard me say that that enhances the anabolic environment internally. Protein and carb together also are natural mood boosters. They increase the ability of um, tryptophan to cross the blood-brain barrier and increase serotonin levels in the brain. Now, we haven't seen that when people are drinking milk, but we know that that's an outcome of protein plus carbohydrate. Um, in addition, milk is high in whey protein, which is high in tryptophan. Milk is a good source of vitamin D as a fortified source and Anybody who is an indoor athlete is typically at risk of vitamin D deficiency. Milk is a great protein source with both whey and casein and many bioactive proteins that interact with our own uh, muscle protein synthesis and metabolism. You can get low-fat milk or you can have full-fat milk and you can decide what you want. There are, I do recommend organic because many of the toxins in our food supply are fat-soluble. And so any food that we have in our diet regularly that has fat in it, may, you may reduce the risk of some of those in your diet. And, and, you know, there's not a straight line. We don't have a lot of data on all this, but it's a common recommendation to try and go with organic foods that um, carry a lot of fat, particularly animal foods. Um, and so, as I said, it doesn't mean that we can't substitute for milk. It's just a really convenient food that has a lot of great stuff in it. The bone building minerals, calcium, vitamin D, magnesium, boron, phosphorus, potassium. It's a great electrolyte replenisher. You know, there's a lot of research on milk <laughs> looking uh, at athletics. And so um, it's a pretty wholesome food. Uh, but if people choose not to consume it, you should know why you make that choice and know uh, if it's filled that's fine. But if it's because you think it's unhealthy for you, you should, I think, dive into some objective research. 
you talk about, and you brought it up a couple times, this is new in the book now, nutrigenetics, which I think for a lot of folks listening out there, it's, it's a new term. How do you define nutrigenetics? So we're looking at um, how so genetic, we, we know that got factors that turn on and turn off our genes. And so we look at both, you know, where it's not like our genes from person to person are dramatically different. Certainly there are errors um, that, that cause problems. But there's also factors from our, our own personal familial history, family history, meaning, you know, who bore us and what their lives were like that can influence factors that turn on or turn off gene genetic potential. Um, We call that epigenetics, and it's what we've been exposed to over a lifetime, and we can pass those on. And so in some people, we know that sulfur components, well, in everybody, sulfur plays a big role in genetic expression. Um, but in some people, it may be more profound than others. And so broccoli <laughs> may, may um, and, and, and sort of the brassica family, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, um, those foods may um, interact with factors that interact with our genetic potential. Um, one area that really overlaps with athletic performance is caffeine. So there's always, we've always known that caffeine does something, you know, for years it was a, an outlawed drug um, by the U.S. anti-doping uh, administration or, and, the, and the World Anti-Doping Agency, but they stopped it because it's so ubiquitous supply and everyone can access it. It's not really something that gives someone a, a more competitive edge over someone who couldn't get to it. So we know that some people get enhanced performance from consuming caffeine and some people don't. We've always had responders and non-responders. And so as they really took a deep dive into that, what they discovered is that yes, genetically, some people respond well to caffeine. Some people are hyper responders, meaning that it makes them feel terrible. And to some people, it doesn't do anything at all. And so when I work with individuals, if I can know that, then I can let them know whether caffeine is even worth trying if they're interested in maximizing competitive edges that are legal. So, so that's Part of what nutrigenetics is, is looking at alleles, factors that, that interact with our genes to see, can we tell whether this is going to work for you or not? What, what it does for you? Is it going to make you feel worse? Is it going to make you feel better? We have some very sort of, eh, it's, not, it's not firm data. It's being used in the weight loss world to predict whether people would not necessarily lose more weight if they were strictly on a higher or lower carb diet, but how they would feel 
And would they be able to sustain that diet more or less? And so we're, there are some diet plans that are looking at genetics to see how would you metabolically feel on a low-carb versus a high-carb diet, and that we can give you a diet that may work better for you. On average, most people know that already. <laughs> They've tried all different diets, yeah. and they know what they feel better on. So you don't even have to spend the money to have a genetic test, which can be expensive. So I know our time's getting limited. I got a couple of ones that we could hit maybe a little bit quickly here. In you mentioned the weight loss world, and a big part of that would be I hear people all the time with intermittent fasting. What are your overall thoughts on intermittent fasting, and does it have a place at all in the strength training world? Yeah, so intermittent fasting is a tool in the toolbox. And so for some people, well, so in studies, what we've seen, and it's pretty consistent now, that it's all about calories. And so if you create a better calorie deficit that you can be more consistent with, with intermittent fasting than just a daily, along the day caloric deficit, then intermittent fasting works for you. But we know that there's no difference in controlled studies between intermittent fasting and the calorie deficit that that creates versus the identical calorie deficit in people who just eat less all day long. So, so it really is about what works for you. Um, the bottom line is if you go into training fasting, you, if your goal of that training are gains in any way, shape or form, strength, power, speed, anything, um, if you, if you want the athletic challenge, you won't optimize that training session if you go into the training session fasting. And we know that. Um, and that data is abundantly clear. However, as long as you're eating before you train or if you're using your training for what we call junk miles, um, <laughs> you know, just to be out right. there moving, but you have no goal for that training session beyond that, then it just doesn't matter. And if you feel better that way and that is good for you, then that's fine. And that's where all this nuance comes in. But, but fundamentally, intermittent fasting is, can be a great tool for people who like it. I like the term junk miles. I'm going to steal that one if you don't mind. Is that yours? Do <laughs> I, should I give you credit for that? Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. That's a common term in the endurance and ultra endurance training world. Oh, gotcha. Okay. See, that is not the world that I live in. But I think it does pertain to just kind of regular workouts as well, where people are kind of getting those junk miles per se. And it's just like moving through right. these workouts here, getting my calories burnt, but not making any gains. So a little short term versus long term there. Okay, big big special section in this one as women are finally getting their due with the research for performance nutrition. And it used to be the trickle-down, mostly male subjects. Science was performed on then, and then women just got the leftovers. But now there's research coming out in science that is specifically geared towards females. So what are some things that make female strength trainers unique, that, unique in their body and the requirements for fuel that's maybe different than men? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's really exciting. And I could finally put a whole chapter in about women. Um, as I said, brain also is a big one. And that got two, cha two new chapters in the book. Yes. And I love um, the recommendations there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's 
especially pertains to to um, contact sports, right? <laughs> it's really important. Yes. Um, yeah, guys so, who used to hit their head against a wall for a living. Yeah. <laughs> so um, with female research, uh, yes, females, women are not small men. They're not men with hormone issues. They are different. And there is some nuance and there are some big differences. So um, what we understand, uh, number one, is that premenopausal women, women who have hormone cycles that, and they're having monthly, monthly menstruation, that they um, are different for half the month than the other half of the month, and they can learn how to put their hormones to work for them and do their strength and power training uh, in the first half of their cycle, sort of from the first day of their period until they ovulate, and then from ovulation forward, the second half of the month, do their endurance training because they're better carbohydrate burners in the first half of the month and they're better fat burners in the second half of the month. Um, and, and so fat for endurance training, carbs for their high-intensity strength, power, and speed. Um, women also are better fat burners for endurance training and utilize carbohydrates less. And so our recommendations for female endurance athletes are different than male endurance athletes. And, and, and it, it isn't, again, the fat around your abdomen. <laughs> it are, they are these droplets of triglycerides around your muscles. Women are better at utilizing them, accessing them, and they are better at recovering and replacing them after exercise. So women are great endurance athletes. And so uh, it doesn't mean that they're not good strength and power athletes. It it just means that we can actually periodize our training. And we're starting to do this, and this is not my research. I take this from um, uh, Georgie Brunve. There's a great app called Fitter Woman, F-I-T-R-W-O-M-A-N, that is general, but it guides you through your months on uh, diet and training as I said, generalized, it's not individualized, but it is informative and educational, and it is based on evidence. Small data, but it's more than we ever had before. Uh, and so um, we really are learning about, about how to fuel women. We also have learned a lot about the actual energy needs and the dramatic impact of low energy availability. We, we are looking and understanding that the human body burns the calories available for its high-intensity energy demand first. And so our foundational health needs are dramatically underfueled, and this is at the root of why many female athletes have very short careers because their health um, dwindles. Uh, the more elite they become because as they restrict calories, those calories do go to fueling their athletic performance, but it underfuels their body. And, and they, are, they, they get sick, they break bones, their tissues tear down, they have mental health issues, all kinds of things from what we call today low energy availability or uh, restricted energy deficiency in sport. And so they're profound. And we know that this ha is happening in men too, 
But it happens that it is the one unique area where we have almost all our data on women. This is something that I'm certainly going to have to spend more time with because when you were talking through it for me, I'm like, whoa, this is a whole new world that I hadn't even begun to open up yet. And that's, it's fascinating. Profound. And so the women that I talk to universally um, will say, who are trying to control body weight, and this is not every single female athlete, but it's an awful lot of them. And as I said, there are men. You know, we know that road cyclists are notorious. When, when the power-to-weight ratio really matters, yes. this is when um, food restriction happens. And so what we see is um, on early signs, um, I'm eating less, I'm training more, I'm getting slower, I'm getting softer or fatter or rounder, my, I'm, my, and my performance is in the toilet. You know, my skin looks terrible. I've got brain fog. I'm not sleeping well. I'm moody. My hair is kind of falling out. These are all symptoms of low energy availability or, or now through the, the uh, International Olympic Committee is being called restricted energy deficiency um, in sport because they are also including the male athletes that um, – that exhibit this. And so it is profound. It is universal. You see it in high school athletes. And most famously last week, we had Mary Kane in her New York times opinion piece, talk about what happened to her. Uh, and, and it is happening in female athletes almost across the board. Um, and, and it is very dangerous and it is dangerous for their health, their performance, their lives and 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 their futures and and it, it must be addressed in a very big way and we have data this is not making it up as we go all right last thing you spent decades in this field and unfortunately we don't have time to extract all the information out of your brain i highly recommend to the people out there go get the book it's unbelievable and every other podcast dr kleiner's on go check that one out too is there anything you feel like we missed that you'd like to add or any messages that you would like the audience to hear? You know, I, I encourage you to think about what you need to eat, not what you can't eat next. Okay. <laughs> that, 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 that the messaging around restriction out of the diet world and when there is lack of data, the diet world uh, and, and kind of a vacuum of information, the diet world, which has been appealing to people emotionally for over a century, has swooped in and masqueraded as sports nutrition, particularly for women and girls. And so, but, but now it's really for everyone. And so have a high bar, expect science, expect science behind the products that you use, the books that you read, the websites that you access, be particular and, and look at whether or not people have, have, have acknowledged and have been transparent as I have. I said, you know what? I work for a carbohydrate company right now. It's not who I always work for. My message is no different now than it ever was, but I am completely transparent. You should expect that from everyone. We want to know, you know, the face of the cow that we're eating, but we're not 
particular about the products and the information that we're consuming. So be careful. And lastly, visit me at DrSKleiner.com. <laughs> I'm at Power Eat uh, on, on social media, Instagram and, um, and Twitter. I'm not a great social media contributor, <laughs> but I am at DrSKleiner.com. <laughs> Good. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for the time, all the wonderful information that you presented it, presented today. And for me, there's you've opened up so many doors now that I've got to go even further down into. So we appreciate that. And again, for all of you out there listening who want to understand your body, its needs for fuel better, go pick up a copy of the new Power Eating book. Doc, thank you again. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Nick. Thank you so much. If you made it to the end of this podcast, thank you so much. I believe time is our most valuable commodity, so sharing yours with me and our guest, it's greatly appreciated. If you don't mind, please leave me some comments and suggestions, and of course, we want to fill the needs of what you came here looking for, and we can't do that without your feedback. And please, if it suits you, leave us a good rating. And lastly, suggest us to your friends, either with word of mouth or by screenshotting the podcast and put it on your social media stories. Make sure to tag me. I'm at Nick Hardwick. I'd love to repost you. Until next time, here's to our house.